Chapel Hill Baptist Church, now in its second building and now going on 94 years since it was founded, faced a major setback as the building became victim to a fire which destroyed all its records. As they were determined to continue to meet as a unified and obedient body of believers, knowing that a physical building could be replaced, they thought outside the box. And like most of us, they began meeting in a barn. Would that be your pick of choice? Until the Lord led them to build what would be their third church building. Then in 1954, Chapel Hill Baptist Church decided to change its name to First Baptist Church of Shalom. They continued to move forward, unified and obedient, trusting God each step of the way, not giving up. On April 11, 2004, they held their first service in their new Family Life Center. That's right, the church building that we are worshiping together in this morning. FBCS family and friends, I believe God is reminding us this morning of some important things that maybe we have forgotten about what it means to be the church here at First Baptist Church of Shalom. With that said, I'm going to be preaching this morning and next Sunday through Philippians chapter 2, focusing on how Paul taught the church at Philippi to build unity within the congregation and within their Christian community through humility and obedience. Please keep in mind, I'll directly be preaching towards those who covenanted, who call First Baptist Church of Shiloh their home, those of us who are members in this church family. But this message is also applicable for everyone else who's present. Paul was writing Philippians to the church of Philippi. His plea focused on them examining their life as a congregation and individually as believers in Christ, concerning the life that they shared together inside the church and in their community outside of the church. Please listen carefully and follow along in your Bible or on the overhead screen as I read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 from the ESV. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we seek to study your word 
in Philippians. And Father God, as we embark upon a new year in the life of our church for 2021-2022 calendar year, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would go into this year as a unified and obedient body committed to following Christ. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to each person a present with us in person and those who are watching with us online. I pray that you would help us to know who you've called us to be and to have the desire to live it out. Right now, Father God, I know in the midst of a congregation this size, there are many things which are distracting us. Maybe for some, it's the simple noise of rain pounding on the ceiling. Maybe for others, it's the thought, uh, Lord Jesus, of grabbing a bite to eat after uh, the service is over. Uh, Father, whatever it is, I pray we would not let those distractions deter us from missing what your word wants to speak to us. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would center our hearts and our worship upon you and upon your word. Guide and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're following along, notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul begins this section with a series of rhetorical questions, not because he is questioning their faith, but because he is emphasizing because of your faith. These questions are aimed at reminding them of the benefits that they've already received from being in God's family and his partner in advancing the gospel message of Christ. Whether we like it or not, as believers in Christ, we need to examine ourselves often to determine if we are offering others the same benefits that we too have received from being in Christ's family. Look at these four rhetorical questions. Because you received encouragement in Christ. You see, we are united in Christ. Because you receive love in Christ, we are comforted with God's love. Because you receive participation in the Spirit in Christ, we have the same Spirit. Let me explain this one a little bit further. This is referring to fellowship in the Holy Spirit, which comes about through His indwelling presence in the church. Think about that. His Holy Spirit's indwelling presence amongst us as a body right now present in this room. Also, in each Christian's personal communion with Him. Whether or not you have been walking with Christ, that's going to be present in this room as part of it. Maybe you have not been living this past week in communion with Christ. That'll be displayed in how you conduct yourself here this morning. The Greek word fellowship speaks of a common interest in which the Christian and the Holy Spirit are joint participants. This is the result of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration and His control over the Christian who is subjected to Him. Paul appeals to them to be like-minded in view of this fact, which naturally will result in unity. Well, here's the tension. If each Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then why was there not this unity being displayed? And why did Paul have to write this letter to the church of Philippi? The problem that the Philippian church had was not all of those who were Christians in the church were living spirit-filled lives. In fact, several were not. 
If they had been, there would have been unity. Thus, Paul is implying that there can be unity if, if they would all live spirit-controlled lives, which would allow the church at Philippi to be, as a whole, like-minded in Christ. I want you to ponder and reflect on that as we go through this message. The last one here, he says, is because you receive consolation and mercy in Christ. You see, we've been given tender compassion for others. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A merciful heart is a sign of having received mercy. Compassion and mercy flow in the lives of those who have experienced them. Paul was impressing on them to look back. Remember everything that Christ did for you when he died on the cross Remember everything that He's doing for you now. Remember everything that He will do for you in the future. We too, as fellow Christians, must look back and remember everything that Christ has done for us, is doing for us, will continue to do for us. Fellow believers in the room, do you remember the day that Christ saved you? What distractions, what hindrances, what unexpected life circumstances have taken your eyes off of that day and have sucked the joy out of your life? You see, that's what distractions like rain are designed to do. They're designed to take our eyes off Christ and place them on everything else around us to deter us from being who Christ called us to be. When you're going through a storm, do you remember Christ's promises that He'll never leave you? He'll never forsake you. When you're battling the struggles and the fears and the anxieties of what to do in the world and the chaos, do you remember Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Christian, don't be anxious, but through prayer and petition, Present your request to me and let my peace guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul's approach is now shifting from the blessing they shared as Christians in Christ to their responsibility to Paul, their spiritual father, to obey his command, his plea for unity within their church family. You see, he said his joy would be complete. When? When they fulfilled this joy, when they stood together, the day of Christ unified. Paul anticipated presenting this mature group of believers to the Lord on the day of Christ to receive the victor's crown. That would be Paul's crown and joy. Therefore, he was exhorting, he was encouraging them onward steadfast, remain firm in the Lord for the glory of God. One day we're going to stand before him. For some, that day might be sooner than later. And Paul wants them to remain steadfast in pursuit of that goal for that day when they're going to stand before their Savior. In verses 2 through 4, we'll break down Paul's command to fulfill my joy in Christ. We're going to examine the three ways in which he provides them. This is how you can do so. If you want to know how you can fulfill my joy, here are the ways. And he says, first, in verse 2, he says, by being like-minded 
in Christ. What Paul is writing here occurs when Christians have the same values and the same loves as Christ had for the church. Paul sought that they would be united in common purpose and action in their community life inside their church. For us today, with the advancement of social media, the distractions designed to divide are at an all-time high. We all need to ask and answer three following important application questions. The first one is this. How's my personal relationship with the Lord? Is there any sin in my life in which I need to confess and repent? The second question, what can I do this week to promote unity within my fellow believers here at First Baptist Church of Shalom? Has the Holy Spirit brought to my mind any situations in which I can aid by being a peacemaker? The third question, will I take time this week to reflect, meditate, journal, and seriously consider the needs and the interests of the others here at FBCS? Will I ask God to translate that considering into one, two, maybe three specific action steps that I'll take? The second, how to fulfill his joy, he says in verse three, is by living with humility and community in Christ. Negatively, what he says here as you read on, he says, don't have selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition can be understood as a motivation to elevate oneself or to put one's own interest before somebody else's. It's a self above others approach. Vain conceit means excessive pride or self-esteem that has no foundation in reality. It's this elevated and incorrect sense of self. Therefore, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit means not letting our actions or motivations be motivated by selfishness, pride, or one-upmanship, which is destructive when it comes to establishing the true community life that Paul was talking about. Paul is identifying and he's highlighting the root problem in the Philippi church. I'll give you an example of what this may look like in church today. Five years ago, my first five years of the ministry, I was 24-7 working on building my ministries. Whether it was Upward Sports or the youth ministry at FBCS, I was consumed about trying to build the biggest and best ministries, not necessarily always for the right motivations. I was humbled one time when, when Pastor Bob approached me and I learned a powerful lesson from him, and it stung at the time. And it was an important principle that I needed to hear. And it was, in a sense, what made my ministry so much more important than the entire life of the church that I needed to have all the volunteers in my ministry. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for us as leaders in this church. No one ministry is more important than the other's. But yet at times, our selfish ambition or our vain conceit gets in the way. It doesn't help build community life, does it? Maybe you have an example from your own life in which you can share that relates to that. Positively, he says, which is the third how to do so to fulfill my joy is 
have a lowliness of mind mindset by considering others' interests ahead of your own in Christ. In verse 4, the solution to the problem Paul just mentioned in the church is having this lowliness of mind mindset that considers others' interests ahead of your own in Christ. Paul is referring to this total lifestyle of service, servility. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want to pause and I want to think about here. Miss Olivia Smith comes to my mind every time I was reading through this message and sermon. Miss Olivia comes out here, waters plants, picks up trash, cleans toilets. She does whatever it takes. Nobody notices that. Some people notice that. Others don't know. She places others' interests and needs ahead of her own. Genuine example of humility in Christian community. The kind of love, the kind of posture that we all need to maintain, that we all need to have in church. A casting of oneself down for the sake of others. The genuine love, this genuine love, it begins when someone else's needs are more important than your own. This occurs when we're pursuing Christ more than we're pursuing anything else. At times, this might mean speaking the truth in love. Maybe you have a really hard and difficult conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who's being divisive in the church, in the community. And maybe you sit down and you, in love, have a hard, difficult, but truthful conversation. Maybe at other times, what this means is you have the humility to admit when maybe you have spoken or acted in a non-Christ-like manner yourself. You repent, you seek forgiveness through mending broken or strained relationships from the conflict. Imagine what this church would look like if we did that. I'm not worried about the other churches, I'm worried about this church. Imagine what would be different if we did that. Imagine how we would interact on social media. The goal is for everyone to move forward together in unity with the same attitude of Christ, Jesus. As the Philippians looked out for the interest of others, others' concerns would become the concerns of them all. We see this example taking place in Acts 2, 42 to 47, and Acts 4, 32 to 37, uh, through this kind of generosity where God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to pause to give some real-life application to this right here. Look around the room right now. I mean, truly look around. Look at everybody in this room. Look around. Look at people's eyes. You see, we see what's on the outside. You might see that I'm wearing a suit today. We see what's on the outside. We look at people, we see how they're dressed. We make judgments, assumptions, and opinions based on those things. We look at their face, whether they have a mask on or a mask off. We make judgments based upon what we see. We see the outside. But God sees what's going on inside each person's heart. Even now, as I speak, God knows what's going on in every single person in this room's heart. He knows exactly what you're thinking right now. Ponder that for a moment. He knows what's going on in your heart. You know what God sees? God sees the people in this room. He sees your hurt. 
those who are going through broken marriage relationships or going through situations with their children or families where they're struggling with broken relationships that need mended. God sees the pain of loved ones who are sick, who are struggling, who have fears, who have worries and anxieties, how they're going to pay their financial bills. The circumstances that are mounting right now where you don't even know what's going to happen next. He sees the person in this room who's hopeless. You see, God sees beyond what we see. He gets to and he sees the heart. We see the image we want others to see, but God sees the heart. When was the last time you entered a sanctuary, prayed up, asking the Lord to direct you where to sit? You and your family. When was the last time you genuinely said, Lord Jesus, will you place me beside somebody who needs the love of Christ today so I can be your conduit of love to that person? Or maybe when was the last time you prayed, Lord Jesus, sit me next to somebody right now because I desperately need the love of Christ and I'm struggling. How prepared do we come to receive? How prepared are we here to give? Verse 5, Paul wants to make sure the Philippians really get the purpose of his letter to them. He doesn't stop there. He digs deeper into the issue of humility in Christian community. He points out to them the life of Christ. What better example? Verses 5 to 6, he says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice Paul starts with Christ's divine status, where he's at his preexistence in heaven before the world began. Reverend Kent Hughes explains it this way, Christ existed in the majestic form of God from all eternity as he shared in the glory of God. Of God, Yet he didn't use that to his advantage. Rather than viewing his equality with God as something to keep, he saw it as qualifying him for his humble descent to save his people. Ponder that for a moment. This is the epitome of humility and self-denial. We serve a Savior who embodies in his essence and character what we should emulate. He's not asking us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. This is genuine agape love. And I think this is worth mentioning here. My standard to follow is not to look around at others in this room, at other Christians or other pastors, and compare myself to how well they're doing or how well I'm doing in comparison to them. Your standard, my standard, and whether we choose to exemplify humility and self-denial, it's not based on how well or how poorly you think I'm doing, or Pastor Bob's doing, or your other Christian friends in this room. Your standard, my standard, is Christ. Christ alone. That's the standard as Christ followers who we follow. As I reflect on popular culture and observe idols in our world today, I hear many people refer to LeBron James as King James, known for his basketball abilities, his philanthropic endeavors, and his voice in social justice issues. Many believe LeBron is the king, 
or as some would say, the greatest of all time. But when I examine how the world defines greatness, all I see is pride and arrogance. LeBron's Twitter post about a police officer in Ohio alone shows his lack of humility in considering others more important than himself, and it verifies the fact that he's not the greatest of all time. You see, Christ, he kissed his accuser on the cheek. He healed his attacker's ear. He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After they beat him, humiliated him, mocked him, and nailed him to the cross. Jesus, who still embodied his full deity and being God, did not cast down a legion of angels to save him. Because he knew he was fulfilling his father's plan to save us. To reconcile the world to himself. This is the definition of the greatest of all time. This is who we should want to emulate in our lives as we live on earth. In verse 7, Paul moves on from Jesus' divine status, and he goes on to explain his slave status, the incarnation. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Christ's humility in heaven is next followed by his humility in the incarnation. Jesus emptied himself, or more properly understood as he made himself nothing, which is defined in this verse with two key phrases, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. What does that mean? When Christ took the form of a servant, he adopted the appearance of being of a slave. Is that the image that you would have picked? He picked the image of a servant, of a slave. He could have manifested himself in the form of God. Instead, he willingly chose to manifest himself in the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men describes his full identity with the human race. He fully participated in our human experience. Jesus was fully man and yet fully God and not just merely man. Think about Christ's birth, the humility in his birth. Is that where we would have chosen to be born? When Jesus set aside the expression of deity, meaning being fully God, in order that he might express himself as a bond slave, he was setting aside his legitimate and natural desires and rights as God. The basic natural desire and the right of God is that of being glorified. But when deity sets these aside, it sets its desires aside and setting its desires aside, it sets self aside. Why did Christ do this? Because he knew there was no other way. He loved us that much. This setting aside of self of Jesus by Jesus was the example that Paul held before the church at Philippi. If each one would set self aside, then unity would prevail. You see, this message, it runs contrary to the world we live in, which is why I need to daily remind myself of what Christ did for me through the incarnation. The implication is that when I don't set my desires and self aside, I'm not going to advance the gospel. You know why? Because I'm going to advance my personal ambitions, my agendas, and my worldly motives, which means I'm not going to be living out Jesus' command to go and make disciples. An illustration, John 13, 1 to 17, we see Jesus, this perfect illustration of self-emptying of himself and his command for his disciples to go and do likewise. Jesus, who's girded with a towel, he gets down on a knee and he starts washing his disciples' feet. 
a task only designed for a slave to do. And here's Jesus, God, washing the feet of his disciples. Can you imagine the expression on their face? Can you imagine the expression on your face if he was doing that for you? As Jesus literally took on the outward expression of a servant, he modeled to his disciples how they were to live and do the same. I want to point something else about this real quick. Did the disciples do anything that deserved Christ washing their feet? Was it because they deserved it? He did it because he loved them. Not because they earned it. He did it because he loved them. I pray right now we're grabbing the posture in the heart of Christ. That Paul is vividly trying to paint to this church at Philippi, which I think is applicable for our church today. In verse 8, Paul progresses moving from Christ's slave status now to no status as he highlights the crucifixion. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's use of the word humbled in these verses refers to the self-humbling act of Christ Jesus as the Son of Man. This was the humiliation of Christ's death on a cross. Imagine how humiliating this was to Christ Jesus in his humanity. Then ponder how much more this must have been in his deity. Important to remember, though, is that Christ Jesus died of his own volition. He was in command of death. Jesus willingly died, not because, not only did he willingly die, but he did so in a degrading way deserved only for criminals. This act of humility and humiliation on the part of Christ, it provided the reconciliation for you and I. Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, for your sin, for our sins as believers in Christ. Without Jesus willing to pay this price, I would be hopeless. So how do we respond to this free gift that we've been given that we don't deserve? Is it by demanding my rights? I am a church member, therefore I have rights. I'm entitled to this. Is that sometimes the posture that comes out of our mouth? Is that what Christ is teaching Is that what Paul is teaching at Philippi? Is that what Christ is teaching through his selfless laying down of his life? Man, I'm going to take this a step further for you like I did a few weeks ago. Paul takes this one step further in the church of Ephesus where in Ephesians 5.25 he writes to them, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As a father, I'd do anything for my wife or children. I imagine... I would, without hesitation, lay down my life for them. Sadly, though, I'm not sure that I would say that I would do the same for a stranger. As Jesus wept and dripped sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane prior to the crucifixion, I can only imagine his wrestling back and forth with his father with what was about to take place. Jesus, though, without hesitation, willingly said to his father, not my will but yours be done. I don't believe for one moment that Jesus was, was wrestling with what he would experience in that crucifixion, but I do believe the anxiety he was experiencing was because he knew this would mean that for a brief moment of time, he would have to be completely separated from his father. I believe that caused him and his father both much pain. Jesus was so connected to his father that a brief moment of separation from him would cause him that much anxiety that he would drip sweat drops of blood. So how do I justify going hours 
sometimes days or weeks without spending time with the Father. Are you starting to grasp the love, the heart, the ultimate expression of humility that resides in the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ? In verses 9 through 11, Paul highlights God the Father's response to Jesus' death on the cross by giving the ultimate status to him through vindication. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul is concluding this incredible passage of Scripture with God's exaltation of his Son. He reminds the Philippian church that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Although at times it may seem that Satan or the world is winning here, we know that in the end they lose. Therefore, we've always got to keep the end in mind. Why? One day, you and I, we as believers in Christ, and even those who are not believers are going to stand before our Savior. And give an account on who we choose to follow. I choose to serve King Jesus, the epitome of humility and self-denial, the greatest of all time. FBCS Church family, may we as a congregation, as a church, always live with the end in mind. As we prepare to start a new year of ministry, will we live with humility that places others' needs ahead of my own? Let's live as Christ Jesus modeled for us how to live until he returns or calls us home. As I conclude this morning, I want us to reflect back to the cross. I want us to carefully consider the scandal and the shame that Jesus went through on the cross for you and me, for those who are his. You see, nothing could be more lower, more humiliating, more self-humbling than that in which Christ Jesus experienced on the cross. It was all his own doing. As Kent Hughes eloquently stated in his commentary in this passage, no one humbled Christ. Herod did not humble him. Pilate did not humble him. The high priest did not humble him. The Romans did not humble him. Jesus humbled himself. One day, every believing heart will cry in voice and song along with the angels and will worship the name King Jesus over and over and over for eternity. We must not simply think this, but we must also believe this. Because what we believe about Christ Jesus is the most important thing about us. And because what we believe about him determines the way in which we live as a body here at FBCS. Do you believe what Paul has taught us in Philippians 2, 1 through 11? about humility in Christian community. As we enter our time of invitation, I, I want you to carefully consider. I want you to ponder how the Holy Spirit is leading you to respond. You see, at times I think we just get so 
into the routine of doing church. A place where we just show up, we listen to some songs, we sing some songs if we like them, and we go home. We don't do anything else. We just go home. As we prepare to enter our time of invitation, I want you to carefully consider and ponder, how is the Holy Spirit leading you to respond? Not elbowing the person next to you and saying what you need to do or what they need to do. How is he leading you to respond? If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, is he calling you to come home, to surrender your life to his voice? If that's you, I pray you would come to the altar. For those present in this room who are already his, have you been living with the end in mind? Have you been living an others-centered mindset? And not just the others who are your friend group. You understand what I mean by that, right? The people you want to spend time with. I'm talking about genuine others-centered. Genuine others-centered mindset. Have you been denying self for the sake of your spouse, your children, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers? The people that the Lord placed in your path at the grocery store, the gas station, at the traffic light, or your kids' sports team. Is the Holy Spirit stirring your heart to confess and repent from any behavior that hasn't been Christ-like? Maybe He's calling you to teach your children about repentance by bringing them to the altar. Will you act and do that which the Holy Spirit is leading you to do? Lastly, for our members here at FBCS, as we've just finished week one of the two-week series on unity in the church, are you being reminded of how Christ has called us to live as a church family? Are you starting to grasp why Paul was earnestly pleading with the church at Philippi to live this way? You see, he wasn't attacking whether they were saved. He knew that they were going to stand before Christ one day. And I believe he earnestly pleaded all the way until the day he died with that church to continue to not get distracted, which is what we as pastors try to do every week. Are you starting to grasp the importance of this in our community, in our church where Christ has called us to live? Has the Holy Spirit been challenging, convicting, or speaking to anything to you in which you need to act and respond in faith? Concerning helping to restore and rebuild unity within our community here at FBCS. If so, will you do as he leads? I'm going to ask the worship team as they would come, as I come forward. As the worship team would lead us in song of invitation, will you take your next step of response and follow the Holy Spirit's voice. Maybe that looks like kneeling at the altar. Maybe that looks like you quietly praying at your seat. Maybe that looks like walking across the room to somebody who you have an unreconciled relationship with and reconciling it with that person. Maybe that's just simply you kneeling where you're at. I don't know what your next step is, but my prayer is, is that you would take your next step as you follow Christ. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to encourage you, respond as the Holy Spirit has led you and then I'll close this in prayer. Father God, I just pray 
I pray that, Lord Jesus, if you're pressing something on our heart, Lord, we would meet with you, whether that's at our seat, whether that's here at the altar, whatever that is, whatever it looks like, I pray we would be obedient to responding to your voice. Father, maybe some just need to come forward and pray for the unity within our community here at FECS at the altar. And maybe they just need to be praying that, Father, as we prepare for our 2021-22 year. I don't know what we need to do, each person individually, but Lord Jesus, I do know one thing, that if you're pressing on our heart, we need to respond. So please help each person to do that which you've called them to do. Father, we love you, and we give this response, Father God, to your glory, to your praise and honor. In Jesus' name I pray.